a long time ago, when my beautiful daughter Rebecca was just a little girl, um, I was cleaning the car in the driveway. She was outside in the driveway with me, and I took her car seat out and I put it up on the porch. And I was vacuuming the car, and I turned and looked, and out of the corner of my eye, I noticed that she had climbed up into it and was trying to climb into the car seat, and it started to tip over onto the driveway. And it's that moment, and many of you parents have had these moments, where it's like everything goes into slow motion. It's like a scene out of an X-Men movie, where it's like just everything is barely moving. And I'm running towards Rebecca as fast as I can, and I have this car seat tips over, and I'm late. And Rebecca hits the, the driveway, and she starts crying, and Susan comes out of the house, or I can't remember if Susan was already out of the house, I don't, I, it was a blur, but Susan and I were both there, and we're just freaking out, we can't believe this, and I feel like the world's worst father, and I'm like, oh my goodness, and immediately when I picked her up, this, she just got this humongous bruise, it just started swelling up, and oh my goodness, we were trying everything to, to uh, it, was, it was horrible, we we're trying to calm her down, and and we, and we said, oh, look, it's, it's big and red like Bob the Tomato, you know, this, this uh, cartoon that the kids used to watch when they were little. And, and I was terrible. As parents, the idea of keeping our kids from all harm, you know, it's not realistic, but that's what we want. Can I keep them away from harm? Can I protect them from everything? Can I make sure that, you know, no, nothing bad ever happens to them? This morning, we're going to read... A text out of Genesis 22 as we con continue this series on God's relentless love and grace. And we're going to read a text in Genesis 22 about Abraham and Isaac. It's a text that makes the heart of every parent twist in a difficult way. It's a text that even if you're not a parent, you're a student and you're here, and it, it makes us look and say, oh my goodness, what is happening? Did everything about this seems wrong. This is this very famous passage of scripture, the account of Abraham being asked by God to sacrifice Isaac. This is one of the most misinterpreted uh, texts in scripture by those who uh, are not theologians, who don't have uh, understanding of the Christian faith and the grace of God, and this is often twisted to say, do you see how horrible this God of the Old Testament is? I'm going to take us to this text, and we're going to see now, through the, through the grace of, of Christ, just how much gospel, just how much grace, and just how much love God shows us through this text. Genesis chapter 22, the first 14 verses. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. 
Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went, both of them together. And when they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, and he laid the wood in order, and he bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorn, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. This is God's word. As we look at this text, what is God doing? What is going on? This, this makes our hearts twist in a radical way. Here's today's sermon in a sentence as we unpacked the gospel out of this text. God's law commands us to worship God with everything, above everything, and God's gospel assures us that he's not withholding anything. God's law demands that we worship God above everything, but God's gospel declares that he's not withholding anything. And as we look at this, what is God doing? Well, first of all, right off the bat, he's distinguishing himself from all the other ancient gods. Because at the time, child sacrifice, as horrific as it is, was common. Many pagan gods demanded child sacrifice. Those pagan religions demanded child sacrifice. One of the most notable would be the Moabites. They would offer children to the god of Chamath. So right away, God is actually distinguishing himself from the other pagan religions where they actually do require child sacrifice. So it, it, this passage shows us three things. First of all, it was never God's intention to sacrifice Isaac. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Secondly, it reveals God's nature as gracious because he provides what he requires. And thirdly, it revealed that God rejected human sacrifice, which was a common practice in the other ancient pagan religions. So the only way for us to understand this moving, intense text is through a cross-shaped lens. In Luke chapter 24, which is going to be our text next week and the week after that, Jesus actually says himself, unless you look at all of the scriptures and how they, they apply to what I came to do at the cross, you can't understand the Bible. That's what Jesus said. You can't understand the Bible unless you look at it in the lens of what was Jesus, what did Jesus come to do? So we can't understand this text here unless we look at it in light of what Jesus came to do, and there's great grace there. I'm going to read you a quote from a very famous author who, from this text, said some things uh, about how they interpreted God. This is what the author writes. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, vindictive and bloodthirsty. This is Richard Dawkins writing in his book called The God Delusion. Now, Richard Dawkins is a brilliant man. He's a brilliant scientist. He's, he's much more intelligent than I am in many respects. 
but Mr. Dawkins is not a theologian. And so the error that he came to regarding God's nature is not an original error. He's not the first one. Dawkins isn't the first one to read texts like this in the Old Testament and say God is a bloodthirsty tyrant. In fact, in 144 AD, a lot of the church believed that God in the Old Testament was a bloodthirsty bloodthirsty tyrant, and it created a heresy called Marcionism that they believed that this is the church. That the church believed that the, the, the good, loving Jesus of the New Testament saves us from the angry old, you know, God from the Old Testament. And they kind of split it up. But we can't understand the scriptures that way. God's not schizophrenic. He's not angry and horrible and then also uh, uh, gracious and loving. In fact, Jesus said specifically in 1 John 10.30, I and the Father are one. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything Jesus came to do actually reflects the Father. In other words, the Old Testament is, is, is God's grace concealed, and through Jesus Christ, God's grace is revealed. So the Old Testament is not just a random set of accounts. This isn't just a story, a random story, or there's just all these random stories you know, put together. What this is is God is an infinite God, and he's trying to reveal himself to finite minds. Abraham doesn't even have the Ten Commandments. Abraham has no scriptures. Abraham has nothing other than God appearing to him and speaking to him. God is trying to reveal his infinite grace to to a finite brain. And so God is doing something very gracious here. We're going to see this, that behind all the principles of scripture, there's a person. And the Bible is not about simply about principles. It's about the person of love and grace behind the principles who changes our lives. So, what is God's nature? His nature is that he's good and loving. It's not that he's bloodthirsty and egocentric. I'll show you this. In verse 1, it says right there, And God tested Abraham. So right off the bat, this is not actually about Isaac. This is about Abraham. God is not after Isaac's blood. He's after Abraham's heart. Because God is going to do something for the next 40 generations through all of history to save his children, to save you and I. And it's going to take him 40 generations in his infinite greatness to pull it off with these finite human brains. And it's going to take him a very long to unfold this glorious plan of redemption to get Christ to the planet. So here, God is revealing himself and he's growing Abraham's faith. This is what he's doing. He's growing his faith. He gave Abraham the faith. And he's saying to Abraham, I'm going to show you that I'm not like the other gods. I'm not like the god of Chamath. And I'm going to do it in a radical way. In fact, the way that I do this is going to cause all of our stomachs to have knots in them because it's so difficult to read that passage of Scripture. But God is actually intentionally saying, I'm about to separate myself from every other god that you're kind of aware of, Abraham. And this is what he's he's doing. The first commandment, is you shall love, or sorry, you shall have no other gods before me. But Abraham didn't have that law. That law came generations after Abraham. So God is literally showing Abraham now through this, this radical test that you can't have anything before me. And we say, oh my gosh, this is just, this is too much. He's asking him to sacrifice his son. I mean, does that, I have an ethical crisis. I have a moral crisis. What's going on? Yet, because God is the creator and we are the creation, this offends us because it seems to say, okay, if there is a God over creation, then it stands to reason he can do with his creation whatever he wants. We say, well, I don't like that at all. I, I, 
I want to be God. I want to decide what's, what's good. But does that mean that God is, is, is an ogre and he's morally saying, well, I'm vindictive and I'm going to do with my creation whatever I want? Clearly not, as the text goes out, what God reveals about his nature. So let's continue to look. So, if Abraham had a set, so what, what's God really up to? He says, you can, I'm going to show you, Abraham, you can't have any other gods before me. And what would be more tempting for Abraham than to turn his son, Isaac, into a god? He was old, he couldn't have children, he has a miracle child. What would be more tempting for any parent who, who loves their child, they can't have children, they have a miracle child, what could be more tempting than to make that child a god? To love them more than life itself. What could be more tempting than that? And so God is now taking Abraham through this exercise because he's wanting to show him something. If Abraham said... No! I will not do it! I love my son more than you! God wouldn't have killed Abraham, uh, wouldn't have killed Isaac because God wasn't after Isaac's blood. He was after Abraham's heart. If Abraham said, No! I won't put him on the altar. He is my God. I love my son more than I love you. I love this thing more than I love you. I love this relationship more than I love you. No, I won't do it. God wouldn't have killed Isaac, but Abraham would have crushed Isaac. Because by not putting him on the altar, Abraham would have been saying, this is my God. This is what I love most. And if you want to crush a relationship, if you want to destroy a relationship, make, a, make somebody God. Put all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your everything in, in that one individual. And you will crush them. You will crush that relationship. If you want to destroy your marriage, expect your spouse to be God for you. To give you meaning and belonging and, and fill your soul. Expect another human being to do that. If you're young and you're not married yet and you're thinking about marriage and you're in a dating relationship, if you want to destroy your future relationship, expect that person you're dating to love you with an unconditional, unrelenting, constant, unselfish love all of your days. You will destroy it because we can set up these mini-messiahs and they always disappoint us because we've got two sinful human beings and though we're covered in God's grace and God calls us righteous, you're not marrying a righteous person. You're marrying a sinner who God calls righteous. You have to understand these distinctions or if you're young people, your marriage is going to be a disaster. Because God calls you righteous because of his grace, but the fact is you in and of yourself still struggle with your sin. So if you want to, if you want to destroy a relationship, make that person God. So make no mistake about it. If Abraham didn't put Isaac on the altar, God wasn't going to go, that's it, I'm going to kill him anyways. The God wasn't after Isaac's blood. He was after Abraham's heart. And not only that, there's something more, way more powerful that is actually going on here that, that we'll see. And so... The question is not if you worship the, or, or when you worship. The question is what are you worshiping uh, that this text prompts us to ask. And there's good news and there's bad news about our worship. The bad news is that our hearts as a church, we are prone to wander in and out of finding our rest in God. In and out. We love him. We trust in him. We rest. We find grace. Our souls are at rest. But then school starts. And now all of my trust and my hope and my my worship goes into my education. Though education is beautiful and valuable and incredibly important, I can worship it. 
or my career, or the job that I need to have, or the job that I don't have, or my spouse, or the fact that I'm single and I want to be married, or the fact that I'm single and I don't want to be married at all. I'm very happy being single, and in fact, I love my autonomous life. I wake up when I want, I go where I want, I eat what I want, I, I you understand, I just, I love my autonomous life, I don't want to be married, I, in fact, I love being my own God. There's a thousand ways this can play out. My vocation, my material things, we weave in and out of it. Thank you, God, my rest, you know, I trust in you and I rest in you and I love you, but then we weave back out of it, and next thing you know, there's that chronic craving for material things, and Christianity is not we're not aesthetics. We're not anti-material. We're not, let's all live in cardboard boxes, don't have nice houses, and don't have nice cars. That's not Christian faith. Right? That's, that's, that's aestheticism. We're not aesthetics. God, God loves matter. God gave you beautiful things, the beautiful world to enjoy, and matter matters, okay? But our hearts have this tendency of weaving in and out, of finding rest there, to, you know, if I just went to the mall and picked up this, this new thing, I would probably feel, well, okay, that didn't work. Maybe the ne- well, maybe the next model. Well, maybe the next... Well, this house was nice, but this week it's not so nice. The car was okay, but now... This is just life on planet Earth. And so, that's the bad news. The bad news is we set up these mini-gods, and then we crush them. And then they crush us. Because they can't, they can't fulfill us. But here's the good news. The good news is that Christ passed every faithfulness test for you. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ kept the first commandment perfectly. You and I weave in and out of it. He kept it perfectly for you. He put nothing above God ever perfectly for you. It's kept for you. That's the good news. And so because of that, his perfect record is yours. You don't have a perfect record. You worship God and you trust him and then you don't trust him. And you and I, we worship him and we're like, you know, oh, my, my hope is in you, but then we doubt we worry. Tragedy strikes. Is God good? Is God even real? I had some great conversations over the last couple of weeks with a, bunch, a, a number of young people in coffee shops, various things, talking about various things, questions of origins. You know, is God, is God real? Uh, one of the young guys I talked about was like, he said to me, looked me in the eye, and he said, you know, I totally believe, I totally believe in God, and I, my faith is totally in Christ, but I look at all the evil in the world, and I'm like, what is God doing? Why isn't he just stopping all of this? So we've got the philosophical questions about the problems of evil. We weave in and out of our trust, but Jesus Christ has a perfect record, and that record is ours, which is good news, because that's actually what God requires from us. And so... He passes this every test. And I, and, I, and I speak personally because I know what it is to trust and rest in God and then come out of that and then wrestle with wanting approval. Wanting approval from you, wanting approval from people on the outside looking at KW Redeemer and saying, is God doing a great work there or not? Is, is, uh, you know, is the church growing or not? When you, when you are a pastor, the number one question you get asked is, hey, how's the church going? But really what people mean when they ask that is, how big is it? Right? That's it. So it would be like saying, hey, how's your family? And instead of saying, oh, well, my kids are doing great, really what they want you to say is, how's your family? Five. You know, like that's, what they, that's the answer people are looking for. And so I know what it is to find my identity and my performance all the time. And I know what it is to kind of struggle with that. I go home. Sometimes I go home on Sunday afternoons and I rest in the grace that I just preached. Sometimes I go home and I go, and I go oh, man, there's a thousand ways I could have preach that sermon better and I get all dialed in I get out of instead of just resting and saying wow I'm so thankful that my life is in God's hands I'm just going to love my family and, and enjoy the Sunday afternoon I get all t- 
turned inward on everything? I know what it is to do that. I, this year I had a number of people ask me to speak at their churches and I turned every single one of them down because I know my, I know my propensity for idolatry. And I know, maybe not forever, but the last thing I need right now is people you know, making memes of me and putting them on the internet with quotes of pithy things that I preach. That's the last thing that my ego needs. Maybe one day, that won't be the case, but it is. The other week I was on the phone with a guy and he was in the States and he runs a, a big conference and he's like, Paul, you got to come down and you got to preach and I'm listening to the Redeemer stuff. I said, I'm not coming down there. He said, man, you got to come down. I said, look, I'm not coming. Why aren't you going to come down? I said, listen, I'm not going to come down because, because I need to just hang out with, with, with the people that God has drawn to Kate Every Redeemer and love Jesus and, and preach the gospel and, and, the, and look, I'm immature. The last thing I need is to go and be at a conference with, with thousands of people and uh, my, my ego can't handle it. Maybe one day I'll be mature and you'll come to me and, and uh, you'll say, oh my goodness, Paul's preaching somewhere. Then you can shake me, shake me and shake my hand and say, I'm glad you're growing up in Jesus, okay, when that day comes. But until then, I get it. I know how hard that is, the wrestle. And, but the good news is that Christ's faithfulness is there for me. I don't worship God with my whole heart, soul, mind, strength. Neither do you. We don't trust him in that way. But that's what he requires. That's what he's requiring from Abraham. That's why this is such a big deal. Every Christian falls into idolatry because we put our hope in something else to fulfill us. But God's grace covers those idolatrous moments. That's what it does. And here's the thing. When, Ab when God asks this of Abraham, just as he asks you and I for this perfect allegiance, asks Abraham for a perfect allegiance, asks you and I for perfect allegiance, we go, oh my goodness, this is like way outside my scope. God does not need us to worship him so he can be fully God. We need to worship him so we can be fully human. Because if we don't worship him, listen, friends, if you, if you don't give your heart to worship of him, you will worship something, are worshiping something, and it is a mini-God incapable of satisfying your soul. And you'll crush it with unrealistic expectations. So the, the first thing is that God's law commands us to worship him above all else, but here's the good news as we move to the, the second portion of this text, which is that God's gospel assures us he's not withholding anything from us. In verse 2, Abraham looks up and he sees Mount Moriah. That's the location of the sacrifice. That's the location of the future temple where they're going to continue to do sacrifice. And that's the location of the cross where God would provide the ultimate sacrifice. In verse 3, it says Abraham arises immediately, early in the morning. I would have slept in. Hey, sacrifice your son. Think I'm going to, like, he, why, what is he sick? Is Abraham sick? Is God sick and Abraham sick? God says sacrifice your son. That's sick. Abraham wakes up early to sacrifice his son. That's sick. No. God has already done a radical miracle in Abraham's heart. God has given, Abraham didn't self-generate this faith. God gave Abraham such faith that God revealed that God is actually able to bring life from death, which is why he wakes up early to go do it. In verse 5, he, he, Abraham turns to his servants in verse 5, that's the clincher, and he says, we will go and worship, and we will return. Abraham says to his servants, me and the boy are going to go and worship, and me and the boy are going to go return. 
But God told him to sacrifice his son, so why would he say, don't worry, we're coming back? Because Isaac is already a miracle child. His wife had a dead womb. God already showed him, I can bring life from nothing. I can bring life from death. And God has done all of this great work, great work in Abraham's heart. And Abraham wakes up early in the morning and he knows, I don't know how God is going to do this. Right? This is Hebrews chapter 11. We get the insight. He, he knows God can do this. He's, I don't know how he's going to raise him from the dead, but there's no way God would take my, my son. Abraham already knows this. So what God required was a man who trusted him with his whole heart and worshipped him above all else so that he could change the course of human history through Abraham, bringing Christ to the planet. So God chose Abraham in grace, he gave him faith in grace, and then he gave him a miracle son by grace, and now he's testing the faith that he gave him. But Abraham doesn't have the faith for any of this. He doesn't. Any more than you. Abraham, in and of himself, cannot worship God in that way any more than you and I can lay aside everything else and worship God in that way. We are so quick... To make, to make God play second, you know, sit in the second seat to our idols. We're so fast. We're like, oh yeah, okay, I'm going to worship you. But then, it, but then it's like, well, hey, I mean, I got to work. God understands. I got to, you know, after all, the, my marriage is important. God understands. School is important. God understands. He doesn't need you to pray to him so you earn brownie points in heaven. He doesn't need you to pray to him and come and worship at Redeemer because you get brownie points for great church attendance. He doesn't need you to do anything. You need him. But we're so quick. We're so fast. Well, God understands. I'm surely he'll understand in his grace. I mean, we preach grace all the time. So surely in his great grace, he'll understand that I have to have this other idol right now in my life. Surely God understands. Right? This, this is a, just our continual struggle. But yet in his great grace, he continually comes towards us. And he continue, continually forgives us. This is foreshadowing Christ's death and resurrection. It's foreshadowing. It's radical. The wood is laid on Isaac's back, the only son, as he walks to his own sacrifice. The wood was laid on Christ's back, the true son of promise, as he is the only son walking to his sacrifice. You know, Isaac is 16 years old when this is happening. Abraham is an old man. Abraham didn't knock him unconscious like an old A-team episode where you're trying to get Mr. T on the plane and you can't have him know what's going on. No, Abraham wasn't like, hey, look, a bird. Okay, and put him on the altar. Think this through. This is a willing sacrifice. Isaac is younger. He's stronger. He can leave any time he wants. His father's 100 years old. This is a willing sacrifice. This is God's radical grace on display going, what is going on here? Why would he be willing to do this? Isaac allowed himself to be bound. When we read that text, and Abraham bound Isaac, our stomachs go, oh my gosh. Our stomachs go, oh my goodness. But not only is Abraham saying, God can bring life from death, I don't know how he's going to do this, but Isaac is sitting there like this, offering his hands, a willing sacrifice. What's that a picture of? In the garden, Jesus turns to Peter and says, put your sword away, Peter. I can stop this anytime I want. A willing sacrifice. Isaac stayed on the altar, willingly. Jesus stayed on the cross, willingly. Isaac asks his father, where is the lamb? Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. In verse 9, Isaac lays down on the wood to be pierced, but he wasn't. Christ laid on the cross, the wood of the cross to be pierced, and he was. 
Isaac, the son of promise, miraculously born of Sarah's dead womb, he's not forced to stay. He's, he, he's not running anywhere. Jesus, the true son of promise, miraculously born to the Virgin Mary, he isn't forced to stay. He doesn't. And then in verse 12, God stops Abraham's hand. And he immediately distinguishes himself from all the other ancient pagan gods that demand child sacrifice. And, Ab- and God teaches Abraham, I'm not like them. I'm not taking anything. I'm giving everything. God had no intention of sacrificing Abraham's son on the altar, but he had every intention of sacrificing his own son on a cross. And so God reveals his nature here. His grace is on display. And so after the biggest test of Abraham's life, as no doubt he's untying Isaac and his hands are still shaking from the adrenaline, guess what Abraham says about God's nature? Abraham doesn't say, this God is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, controlled freak, vindictive and bloodthirsty. That's not what Abraham says. Abraham says he's a provider. He gives everything he requires. Everything he requires from you, he gives. He gave. That's why we walk out these doors, church, and there's nothing for you to do. I say it every week, it never gets old. The good news never gets old. You're not keeping the first commandment. You're not worshiping God with all your own heart. Before we get gathered together next Sunday, before the sun goes down tonight, you and I, our hearts will wander in thought or in word or in deed in some way. Yet in his great grace, he provides everything, which causes for us to want to live to the glory of the one who saved us, want to worship him above all things, want to worship him as our God, because he's a provider, because he's gracious. This is is his grace on display. The reason we have this scripture, the reason there's knots forming in our stomach, is because this account of a loving father who is loving his son, and the son who is giving himself as a willing sacrifice, it gives us a small glimpse into the anguish of the heart of God as God was giving his son for our sin. And so Isaac's question echoes throughout the entire Old Testament. Where is the lamb? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Where is the lamb? Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. Where is the lamb? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. Where's the Lamb? Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Where's the Lamb? Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Where's the Lamb? 400 years of silence as Alexander the Great goes from Macedonia to India and he, and he Hellenizes the entire... Where's the Lamb? Then in the book of Matthew... John is baptizing at the Jordan River, and he raises his eyes, and he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. How much of your sin did Christ atone for? All of it. Past, present, future. Done in Jesus. God poured his wrath on Christ, so he poured his grace on you. God's grace, that's last. Church, let's pray. God's law commands us to worship him above everything, and his gospel assures us he is not withholding anything.